You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. We're continuing our study in Hebrews uh, cheat there. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews 5, starting in verse 11 today. Um, I do want to preface today's message uh, before we begin. Today's text addresses what can be uncomfortable and direct inquiries into the human heart. And and because of it, I must address uncomfortable and direct inquiries into the human heart. Today's text is going to be hard for some of you in the room today. And and uh, I might come across as harsh because it is a warning passage. Now, those of you that have been with me for the last year, you know me. You know that I love you dearly and I care for uh, both you and for your soul. But for those of you that have been new here um, in the last couple months, um, I just want you to know um, that even though it might sound harsh, I love and care for you deeply. And I just want you, as we look at the hard text today, to know that the Word of God does address hard matters of life. If you remember our study into Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, remember what it says, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Today's message is sharp. Today's message is sharp, but I hope that it makes much of King Jesus and make us more into his image. So stand with me as we look at today's text Matthew 5, 11 through 6, 3. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since some of you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about watching and laying on hands the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father God, and may it be your words that go forth this morning. May it not be my cleverness. May it not be um, agendas that I wish to push. But Lord, may the word of God be impressed upon our hearts this morning. May we be challenged. May we repent where we need repentance. And Lord, may we realize that we have a Savior that has arms open wide for those that do repent to run to, to rest in, and to enjoy in the house of faith. In your son's name I pray. Amen. I want to begin today with Susan's warning, which is also the author's warning. Well, who's Susan, right? 
let's begin our passage today by going back to the beautiful world of Narnia. Many of you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where four children make their way into Lewis's magical land of Narnia. They slay the White Witch with the help of Aslan and rule on the four thrones of Car Paravel. The four children rule into their adult years and it is only after their hunt for a white stag that they find their way back into our world. And while many of us have read or seen the most famous of C.S. Lewis's book series, many of us have not stuck around to the last one. The last book, The Last Battle, finds us in Aslan's country, which is just another term for heaven. And not all four kings and queens of Narnia are there. There's a stunning omission. Susan is not present. Even within the story itself, many of the characters are shocked that she is not with them. And then we have a discussion between the High King Peter and Eustace on the dire circumstances of what has happened to Susan. This is what it says. My sister Susan, answered Peter shortly, shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. Yes, said Eustace. And whenever you try to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. And this moment in the story issues a stark warning for us in our own world, outside the books. When we too get to heaven, we're going to see and be greeted by people we would have never thought made it. We would have never thought we're there. And we're going to realize the people we thought were going to be there are not. And it hits us. You see, there will be people who we thought would be present in heaven, but it turned out they weren't Christians after all. We call this, it's the big theological term, we just call this apostasy in the church. Well, what's an apostate? An apostate is someone who once seemed like a believer, but who later totally rejects Christ, turns away, and leaves the church, the visible church. Look, apostasy is a sobering issue. It's a scary issue. And it's one that God's put for, God puts forward to us in the text today. On an important note, I want you to understand this. Apostasy does not have anything to do with losing salvation. It has everything to do with revealing whether someone was ever saved in the first place. There are too many passages in the Bible that speak to the reality of the assurance of salvation. We cannot discount that God indeed holds fast to those who are called according to his purpose. Let's just take a look at two texts, John 10, 28. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It does not deal with people losing salvation here. This is not what apostasy is. It does warn that apostasy is making sure that our calling and election is sure. This is 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So let's chew on the text today, for it has a lot to say. Let's go back to Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's the faith like a toddler, not faith like a child. I know we all like that term, right? With a faith like a toddler. Imagine a large church meal. I hope we actually do this one day. I think it'd be cool. Imagine a large church meal. Everyone's in attendance. We got tons of tables outside. Not the fold-up type, but like beautiful, ornate, like wooden tables, right? Everyone's in attendance from the church, Um, like Mark and Caleb have shot like 20 turkeys, right? And we're like, we're ready to party, okay? It's like a preview of the great, you know, white uh, supper of the lamb. And someone says grace, and we begin to pass the plate. And then someone pulls out this like two-pint bottle of milk and starts chugging away, right? As all the food passes in front of them. What would we think in that moment? We would probably think, this person's lost it. They've gone mad. And maybe we should just stop. Everyone stop. We're going to pray for this individual right now. They're an adult drinking an adult baby bottle. And probably, we probably should, right? But that's what the text is saying today. He's stating that a congregation should be feasting on food. But instead, there are many in the congregation in this original letter that have turned to a milk bottle like a toddler. And this should be a wake-up call for those that call ourselves Christians. Are you growing? Are you becoming more mature in the faith? Or have you put yourself in a vulnerable spiritual position? Have you put yourself in a vulnerable spiritual position? And the writer here gives four characteristics of faith like a child. We're going to go through them in detail. The first is they don't listen well right? They're forgetful, they're unskilled, and they're undiscerning, which really is a really good description of a toddler, right? Like we've all, uh, all of us who have been parents or hung around toddlers, that's a very apt description of a toddler. Well, let's start with the beginning. They don't listen well, right? They don't listen well. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Well, why is it hard to explain? It's not because the gospel is complex. It's not because first century Jews were stupid. No, the verse goes on to say, it is because they have become dull of hearing. Now the word dull here really just means lazy. It can also be translated in the Greek to numb. Here's the question. Have you ever found yourself listening to a sermon and found yourself numb, zoned out, a little bit lazy, I know some of you in this audience probably right now want to yell out, yes, right now, pastor, absolutely. I have too. And I'm sure at those moments I've wanted to blame the pastor, right? But more than likely it's my own fault. Too often I'm much more concerned about other things that are happening in my life than what the word of God has to say for a half hour on a Sunday. I'm more concerned about my March Madness bracket more concerned about issues at work, more concerned about broken relationships around me, more interested in whether the fish will be biting that afternoon. And ironically, all those things would better fall into place 
if I wasn't numb to the word of God that was preached to me for a half hour, 45 minutes on a Sunday and believed, actually believed that its application would affect my heart and the relationships and the issues of my life. It affects all those things that we just talked about, except for maybe your March Madness bracket. For some of you, I don't even think Jesus can save that, okay? But the worst case scenario, the worst case scenario is that the reason you're numb to the sermon is because your heart is dead. Your faith is not real. And the reason you think to yourself, who cares about the preaching of God's word is, well, because you don't. And that means that you don't listen well. You don't listen well. Second, they are forgetful. Okay, who's here with me? You can raise your hand if you want. Who's ever, you know, been doing your Bible study early in the morning, cup of coffee, it's really nice. It's prior to the kids waking up because once they wake up, there's no point, right? So you're doing your Bible study early in the morning and you get done with your cup of coffee and you have immediately forgotten everything that you just studied for the last 10, 15 minutes, right? You're really, you're, you're, at, you're on Facebook and Instagram so fast, like it's faster than a snap because you're already there. You don't think about the sermon past noon on a Sunday because you forgot the passage before you exited the door. If that's the case, you don't let the word of God pierce your heart. For some of you, word of God piercing your heart is an instant, but many times it's a deep plunge that takes time in life. It's a slow plunge. Like I heard the story of a pastor who was guest preaching at several churches in the area over the course of a month. He was kind of doing a tour of several churches. While at the same time, there was a guy that was church shopping that exact same time. And he went to one church to hear the pastor preach on one Sunday. And the pastor preached the exact same sermon at another church the following Sunday. And that man who was church shopping just happened to be at that exact same church. And the man came up to him after church and he said, Pastor, I've accidentally seen you preach twice in a row. I was at that last church that you were at last week, and I was at that church this week. Both your sermons were excellent. The pastor just shakes his head. Verse 12 reminds us that some of us need to be taught the same things over and over again. Why? Because we don't pay attention the first time. Verse 12 says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, He is saying, you've heard this for so long, you can't even spell out the basic principles of the faith. Okay, Uh, this is where I step on feet occasionally. I'm preparing you, okay? I wore boots today. That's how I get around it. Um, I would consider a suggestion, okay? Here's the honest question. For those of you that have been in church, let's do an obnoxious amount of time. Let's say like a decade, okay? For those of you that have been in church for a decade, If someone asked for you to explain the gospel to them, would you be able to? If someone asked for you to explain the gospel to them, would you be able to? I like the yes. Look, let's be real. It seems to me that it seems only in church that you can participate in something for a decade and not be expected to understand the first thing. Look, imagine being a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout for a decade. And when they ask you to tie a knot, you're like, "Uh, I don't know. Imagine going to the gym, lifting weights for a decade. And when someone asks you to spot them at the gym, you're like, "Uh, I don't know how to do that when they take the bench. 
Imagine playing a sport once a week for an hour, for a decade, and still not knowing how to throw the ball, how to shoot a pass, how to, how to catch, sorry, how to shoot a shot, how to catch a pass or a dribble, like the most basic things in the sports. And now imagine calling yourself a Christian for a decade and not being able to tell someone the most basic things about the gospel, like actually explain to someone what a Christian is and what is the hope that we have. But let's be real. This is way too often the case. There are tens of thousands of men and women in this country that call themselves Christians and have for decades that can't explain the first thing about Christianity to anyone else. Our issue in the church is not that we expect too much of people. It's that we expect far too less. And if you're in church today and these first two descriptions fit you, I'm begging you to listen and to remember. I'm begging you. Look, I don't expect you all to have the gift of teaching after 10 years. That is a spiritual gift. But we can all at least be students of the faith. And that's what the next two things talk about, right? Hebrews 5, 13. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. So the third thing is, is they're unskilled. Now, the word of righteousness that's discussed in that verse is just the scriptures in verse 13. Think about it. We have the Bible in America more than anyone else in the history of mankind. Average American home has three Bibles. Average American home has three Bibles. Nine out of 10 homes in this country have a Bible. And yet, there has never been a period in the history of this country in which people know their Bibles less. And I'm not talking about society in general. I'm talking about like the church. And that isn't surprising, right? There are tons of churches, even in our county, that have a spiritual TED Talk every Sunday morning that they attach a Bible verse to. They don't study the Word of God. They use it to promote an agenda. And I'm not saying you need to be a Bible scholar to be a Christian. But is your knowledge of the Word of God more, less, or the same than it was five years ago? One of the best things you can do in this area is simply to be a reader or at least a listener to the word. Now, I know people always say, Pastor, I'm not a reader. Great. You know who doesn't like to exercise? This guy, right? But I do it. Why? Because I'd like to, you know, see great grandkids and, and all those things. I exercise. I, I do. Believe it or not, I do. Some of you are laughing like he doesn't know what a, you know, a, a treadmill is. I do. I know what it is. You walk on it, Okay. Like, I, I, I have to eat healthy, not when there's a donut around, but like the rest of the time, like I have to eat healthy. I stick a stick with a brush in my mouth every day and go like this for a minute, like a crazy person, maybe two, right? Why? Because I don't want cavities, right? I don't do any of those things in purpose. Like, excitingly, right? But as I do them, I grow to even find some joy in them, right? I love getting the dentist office and, you know, you hear that well done, good and faithful servant, right? Moment, right? You did good. Your gums look great. We love that moment. Good job, right? I love salad now. It's covered in bacon, but I love salad now. I actually enjoy it. 
And there are days, right, when I exercise that I actually crave the burn, right? That's weird for me to say. If you all knew middle school and high school, maybe you'd be laughing out loud, right? I actually enjoy it. Those things didn't happen overnight. Now, when it comes to reading the word of God, for some of you, it might feel like pulling teeth. It might feel like all those three things right now. But the word of God is, again, we already talked about it early on, Hebrews 4, living and active, and it's beautiful. God isn't calling us to like some awful thing. He's calling us to know him better. And I promise you, it gets easier the more time you spend in it to the point where you even want to do it. You see, you can be skilled in the Bible even if you're not a reader, right? Because God hasn't called you to something bad, but he's called you to something great. And the more you know your Bibles, then the fourth one becomes easy, right? They are undiscerning. Well, this comes back to the lack of knowing your Bibles. People that can't distinguish good from evil because they don't know the standard of good from evil, which is found in the text of Scripture. And they don't have access to the God's goodness. They put themselves in bad situations. Like a toddler running out into the street, they don't know any better, right? I got to do this with Bobby. He loves cars, right? I'm sure he wants to give every car a high five that passes us on Casey Miller. You can't do that, kid, Hey. But he doesn't know better, okay? Dr. Michael Kruger says this. He says, if you are not growing in your Christian faith, you could be much more easily enticed away from the deceptions because you don't have the strength or the energy to defend yourself. But I want us to think of all these four warnings really in the long view because sanctification should be viewed in the long view. Now, my guess is there are many of you in this room that are beating yourselves up at this moment. And some of you probably need to, right? Like all of us need a kick of the pants from the Holy Spirit from time to time. Others of you might be going, is this me? Is this me? Do those four things describe myself? But I want you to understand what it means to be growing in grace, growing like a Christian. Sanctification has a long view in mind. The, The question is not, do I love God more today than I did last week? Because let's be real, it might have been a really rough week for you, right? But the question is, when I look back at my life, do I love God more? Do I desire knowledge of him? Am I growing in the fruits of the spirit more now than I was a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago? Do I see the fruit of the spirit in my life? Do I desire to know Jesus more compared to times previous? Like, I've told this story a lot, and so I apologize for the echo, right? Junior high, I get saved. They give me a spiritual gifts test because that's the popular thing to do. And I scored a 3 out of 30 in mercy. Arrogant AJ was a jerk, right? None of you would have liked my middle school self. Maybe a little bit more my high school self and maybe a little bit more my college self. But either way, like, hopefully that guy's dead in the water somewhere, right? Because arrogant unmerciful AJ was a jerk. And I remember taking a spiritual gifts test about a decade later. And mercy was in my top four. That is a work of the Lord. That has nothing to do with me. But being able to see a decade later, oh, this is where you've grown me in my life, right? I've taken the bat out of my trunk. I don't want to be a road rage addict anymore, right? Like those, those, that's a true story, right? Like I don't want... There was growth. There was a desire to have fruit of the Spirit in my life. And I could look back and see it. 
So what about you? Do you see a spiritual difference in your life compared to five years ago? Do you see God working in your life? If you're married or you have a roommate, um, this might be a good question to ask them to be honest with you later. Are you serving those around you? Are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Are you growing in your understanding of God's Word? Or, Or are you sucking down a bottle like a cow on a binger? Whatever you are in answering those questions, the author of Hebrews calls you to something even greater. Why? Because Jesus is greater than wherever you are along the journey. Look again at the beginning of chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from the dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will, we will do if God permits. So what are the elementary doctrines? What are the ABCs of the Christian faith? What is it within that milk bottle that many of us are chugging down? What are the core tenets? There's three of them. One, repentance, repentance and faith is the first one. This is just how you become a Christian. When someone asks you how to become a Christian, repent of your sin and believe in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died the death that we deserve and rose on the third day, overcoming death, so that we too can cling to the promised resurrection that we will receive on the last day. Repentance and faith. Next, washing and laying of hands. What it probably are referring to here is baptism and entrance into the church. Either way, there's a clear public profession of faith. It's saying, this is what I now believe and who I will now follow. It's a declaration to the world that I'm indeed a Christian. Next, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This is the hope that we have, that death has been defeated, death has been overcome. I am clinging to the hope of the resurrection and of life everlasting that is offered to me in Christ and that Christ will come again to judge the world and that all the injustices that have stood in this life will be made right. Justice will reign when Jesus reigns on the earth. These are the core doctrines of the faith. And these are great. These are good. These are the ABCs. But look, while these are all very, very good, there is a rich understanding of who God is and who we are in relation to him that can be explored over the course of the Christian's lifetime. The God of the universe and what is offered to us in Christ is so vast that a lifetime is not enough to explore all that he has to offer and all that he would do for us, for our good and his glory. We get to build relationships with Jesus, yes, based on these core truths. However, the core truths are not the end of the household of faith. They are the foundation of the household of faith. Yes, Christ is the cornerstone, and everything is built on Christ, and these core doctrines are great truths that we build our lives upon. But we're meant to live in a house. We're not meant to live on a foundation, solely a foundation. We are meant to live within a faith that has many rooms that are beautifully designed. And understand this, it is not that we are building the house. It is that Christ has built it for us. Verse 3 reminds us, and this we will do if God permits.
Let's talk about the house of faith. God has given you a house of faith rooted in Scripture. It's the light of the world. The way in which we get to explore everything around us. Let's take the analogy of a toddler in a house, right? They're in the kitchen sucking down milk. Let's be real. It's where most kids spend a good portion of their time, okay? But the lights of the house are all off except the light in the kitchen. That's the ABCs of the faith. The toddler can explore the kitchen, and there's a lot of trouble you can get into and a lot of cool things that you can explore, right? There's a lot of basic, basic aspects that the, the toddler can get his arms around. You could argue that if you had to live in one room in the house, I'd prefer it be the kitchen, right? But at some point, we've all had this experience. It's terrifying, right? The toddler grows enough to where he can flip the switches in the house. All fathers know this. 20% of parenting is turning off lights in rooms that no one's in. And for each successful toddler that knows how to learn to flip the switch, it goes up another 5%. Right? That's parenting. That's all fathers in the room. Amen? Yes, you've been there. Okay? Back to the analogy. When the kid starts to explore the house, he turns on the light in his bedroom and he goes, wow, there's a bed to rest in with my name on it. I can rest in the assurance of my salvation. There's a desk in my room to study. There's place for clothing because I've been clothed in righteousness. It's like a kid exploring a new house after a move. And they turn on the light in the bathroom and they're like, oh, I can be made clean. There's a place for sanctification. They turn on the light in the living room, right? There's a space for others. They, when they get older, whoop, they turn on the light in the workshop attached to the house. There's a space for God to impact the work of my hands. They turn the light in the laundry room. There's a space for day-to-day activities that I need to get done. They turn on the light in the prayer closet. There's a space where I can shut the door and be alone with my Father in heaven. Then they turn on the light on the deck on a beautiful dark night, and they get to see all of creation. They get to see all the stars of the heaven and they get to see what reflects the glory of God. And then one day they realize they're not in the house alone. There are other people walking around the house. Amazing. I get to interact with them all the time. I get to share in chores with them. I get to grow in grace with them. I get to sit around a dining room table and interact with them. And as they continue to explore, they realize that all their rooms are attached to the same house. And it would literally take over a lifetime to explore this whole household of faith that we're, get to offer, we're offered and we get to live in. And over the course of time in the house, we listened and we remembered and we became more skilled and we became more discerning. It's the question. Do you live in the house? Look, I got to ask it. Look, I'm sure for the first part of the sermon, many of you had to wonder, am I a Christian? Or have I just been playing the part of the Christian for so long that I don't see growth? I don't see desire. I'm numb at these services. And if that's the case, then you very very well might not be part of the household of faith. So how do you join? How do you become a Christian? Let's start with the ABCs. We just talked about it. Repent of your sin. Turn from the sin that is in your life and believe in the work of Christ. Well, what is the work of Christ, Pastor? Christ lived a perfect life on our behalf. He died a death that we deserve. And then he rose from the dead to bring us life. 
do you believe in and trust in the work of Christ for your salvation? If that is a yes, then hallelujah, amen. Be baptized, join the church, and look and cling to the hope of the resurrection and justice that will come at the last day. And drink the milk for a season. But don't forget there's a household of faith to explore all the contexts of Scripture. There are rich truths that ground us in the best seasons of life and the hardest seasons of life. And throughout your life, the Bible states that if you are in Christ, you will be made more and more and more into his image. The fruits of the Spirit will become greater and greater in your life, and a thirst for a relationship will grow with God. May that be us. May we not be like Susan. And just remember that time in our lives. Well, we gave our lives to Jesus at a camp I was at when I was a teenager. And those were funny times, right? Uh May that not be us. But as we begin our journey of exploring the household of faith, in that house, may we find peace. May we find belonging, identity, and purpose that we all are designed to crave and have in this life. May we turn to Christ this day. Amen. Bow your heads.